SciShow Tangents is brought to you by Manukora Honey. Merriam-Webster defines honey as a sweet, viscid material elaborated out of nectar of flowers in the honey sack of various bees. And that's all good and fine, but old Miriam and Webster (laughs) used some words that I don't know and didn't really hit the mark when it comes to talking about Manukora honey. First off, Manukora isn't just sweet and viscid. It's got a rich, complex taste and a creamy, melt-in-your-mouth texture that you won't find in your average, everyday grocery store honey. And nectar of flowers doesn't cut it when you're talking about the nectar of the Manuka tea tree in New Zealand. The only nectar these bees feed on in the production of Manukora honey. In conclusion, Manukora ain't just your average boring dictionary defined honey. It's special honey. I know this firsthand. Uh, they sent us a jar, a squeeze bottle, and some honey sticks. And we've been sharing them around the office of their MGO 850 Plus, their best selling honey. It's not the same. <laughs> it's not <laughs> what you're thinking of when you think of honey. Look, have you ever think to yourself, if like, a company made grapes for the first time, we'd go nuts. It's, I feel like honey is this way, where I'm like, if anybody like made this up, we'd be going out of our minds. But this is like if honey happened again. Did you like the honey, Sari? So I moved into a new place where there's no insulation in the walls. And so uh, I've been drinking a lot of tea. And mm-hmm. sometimes that tea needs a little bit of honey. And I initially poured in this honey thinking it was going to be grocery store honey. And then I was like, that's different. And now it's a little uh, breakfast treat. It's a great breakfast treat because it's 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 a little like it's for toast. I could put like this on my butter toast and I'm like, oh, I'm having an experience. So Merriam-Webster also defines ultimate as the best or most extreme of its kind. Now that one fits Manukora to a T. Indulge in the best or most extreme sweet viscid material elaborated out of nectar of flowers in the honey sack of various bees from Manukora. If you head to manukora.com slash tangents, you can get $25 off their starter kit, which comes with the MG850 Plus Manuka Honey, a free travel pack of honey sticks, a free wooden spoon, and also a free guidebook. That's M-A-N-U-K-O-R-A dot com slash tangents to get $25 off your starter kit. SciShow Tangents, the lightly competitive science knowledge showcase. I'm your host, Hank Green. And joining me this week, as always, is science expert, Sari Riley. Hello. And we have fellow science experts, Deboki Chakravarti and Sam Jones. It's just an all-science episode <laughs> today on SciShow Tangents. No every persons. We've got a bunch of extra PhDs here today. Uh, way more than usual. Infinitely more. The, the, these are the hosts of the podcast Tiny Matters, which I have been on and love. So recently, I, right now I'm getting radiation treatment for my cancer. And before doing that yesterday, I decided to go do my very first CrossFit class. And that's how I know I'm an idiot. <laughs> CrossFit normally is yeah. already bad news. <laughs> I'm really curious about the steps that led to that. So like there's a CrossFit gym very base. Okay. It's very close to my house. Mm-hmm. All the other gyms would require that I get in a car, but not this one. Yeah. And so I thought maybe that would be the, the way to go. 
And honestly, it was like, I think for CrossFit, pretty chill. Like there was a sign on the wall that said, do the fucking work. Um, (laughs) But but none of the people were like the sign. That is a hard launch back into exercise. We've all been idiots at one time in our life. Speak for yourself. (laughs) (laughs) I've only ever been a genius. (laughs) Have any of us ever had, I know, I know that this is this crowd. But like a fitness goal that we went for run. I know that Sarah has done some running. Yeah, I've done some running. Yeah, I I have run to the point where my body collapsed, uh, which was I did the the dopey challenge, which it's right there in the name. It uh, is (laughs) run by (laughs) Walt Disney World. Yeah, and it's a bunch of idiots that do it together. I did it with our friend uh, Nicole Sweeney and you run a 5K one day and then a 10k the next day and then a half marathon the following day and then a full Ooh. marathon the following Ooh. day wow so all four days in a row you just keep pushing your body to further and further distances and after the last day after i finished uh i just started sobbing because i didn't know <laughs> i'd put my body through so much um and my partner sylvia was like would you would you like me to like come back to the hotel with you and then i broke down crying i was like yeah that would be nice <laughs> but you did Uh, it though that's amazing can you enjoy disney anymore is it like did you ruin that forever (laughs) (laughs) i think i can enjoy that was only my second time at disney i think ever uh and so it is a a core disney memory now anybody got any other fitness challenges they've done because no one's gonna beat (laughs) series Yeah, sorry, yeah, I, I started. I, I with, cannot beat that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I feel like I'm still like getting up to like being able to run. Like I'm mm-hmm. I'm happy that I can like last the more than like a few minutes. Like when I was uh in college, I was a sprinter and now it's like an older person, you can't really sprint the way that like there's not like a show up and run a hundred meters until you're like 35 and they start doing masters races. So my only choice for running is to start running like five K's and up. And I don't like believe in those distances, but that's my, (laughs) my option. (laughs) So funny. I have a sort of athletic challenge, but it's more like an athletic challenge paired with a food challenge. Um, Way better. (laughs) So, um, I swam, I competed through college. So we'd swim a lot, like every day, you know, I was putting in like depending on the day, you know, you wake up, you do a morning practice, you're in the weight room. And then in the afternoon, you come back for like two, three more hours. So you're swimming a lot of miles and you're very hungry. And so somehow that like sometimes would just end up as trying to see how we could, how quickly we could eat different types of food, which is disgusting. (laughs) (laughs) And so I think like my most impressive one was probably, I think the challenge was like, how quickly can you eat six hot dogs. And I think I did six in like less than two minutes. And oh I think that, that was a, a a high point for me in my I college career. I thought you were going to say like five minutes or something like that. <laughs> Leave it to college students to take like uh, the healthiest possible lifestyle and make sure that they can find <laughs> yeah. ways to make it very yeah. unhealthy. Yeah. Like, I, I don't know what I was thinking, but. Oh, I do. You're thinking I need to eat a lot of hot dogs right now. And I mean, the best part of doing CrossFit was afterward, I was so hungry and I felt yeah. like hungry in a good way. Yeah, I hadn't yeah. felt because I've been sick for so long where I was just yeah. like, I'm hung, like, I'm hungry and I want to eat like healthy food. I want healthy food. That's what my body mm-hmm. is telling me to eat rather than not hot dogs, a lot of chips. <laughs> which is mostly what it's been telling me to eat. It doesn't help that my doctor keeps telling me or or during chemo was like, anything you want to eat, you should eat. 
And I was like, oh, wow. thank you. I've been waiting my whole life to have a doctor tell me that. <laughs> <laughs> so every week here on SciShow Tangents, we get together to try to one-up, amaze, and delight each other with science facts while also trying to stay on topic. At least that's what we usually do. But years ago, when we started to do this podcast, our resident everyman, Sam Schultz, gave me this sealed envelope. And it says, to be opened in the event that Sam goes on vacation. And he told me, You'll know what to do with this when the time is right. Well, Sam is on vacation now, so I opened it. And inside, there was a VHS tape, which I'm going to play for you now. <laughs> Hello, it's Sam. If you're receiving this message, it can only mean one thing, that I'm on vacation. And without my cool, calm, but firm leadership, I expect that SciShow Tangent is on the verge of chaos. That is why I've devised a secret plan to be executed in the event of my absence. I call it the Spider Initiative. You might notice that there are two guests on today's episode. You already know Deboki Chakravarti, Tangent's esteemed research assistant and co-host of the podcast Tiny Matters. Joining her is Sam Jones, the other co-host and executive producer of Tiny Matters. And you might know these people as colleagues, peers, even friends. But today, they are your mortal enemies. As everyone knows, science podcasting is, at its heart, a competitive endeavor. Only one science podcast can be the best and the most smartest, and that is exactly what the Spider Initiative initiative was formulated to determine because spider you see is an acronym you are participating in the first ever science podcasters invitational deadly educational rally big versus small edition here's how it works from all outward appearances this is a normal episode of scishow tangents sari and deboki will alternate presenting games that the rest of you will play points will be awarded to participants as normal but under the surface a meta game is roiling the podcast co-hosts have been divided into teams sam and deboki are team small because they host a podcast about small things and hank and Sari are team big because tangents covers big broad topics or something like that as you gain points as an individual you are also <laughs> gaining points for your team and at the end of both games team big and team smalls points will be combined and one team will experience the sweetest victory while the other experiences the most bitter defeat and in order to kick off this most auspicious occasion i will now present the traditional science poem Behold the vast galactic plain where galaxies royal and stars combust. But take a closer look again. It's all made up of cosmic dust. The blue whale glides beneath the sea, surveys the murky world he rules. The largest beast to ever be, even he is made of molecules. A universe comprised of layers from big to small and back again. With this in mind, prepare yourself, players, for big versus small. Let the games begin. Thus it is spoken. Let the spider initiative, big versus small, commence. And like, text me if you get confused about the rules or something. Have fun. (laughs) I love that. I feel like I also should have signed like a waiver coming into this. You know, when the word deadly comes into the... Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. you didn't know. No, it's good to be surprised by a deadly event. So I guess that's that's what we're doing. And the topic for the week is uh, big versus small. It's I show tangents versus tiny matters. Sari, uh, I know this is a surprise to you uh, as well as to the rest of us. Uh, can, but can you tell me like what big and small are? Yeah, I can do that softball question. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, no, no, because sometimes big things are small. Like the and biggest thing on earth is very small in the universe. Well, we won't think that hard. Okay, great. Uh, we that. just we just say if a kid can learn big and small, we can learn it too. They're they're yeah. opposites. 
Uh-huh. And I think that that is what frames this episode. We are pitted against each other, big and small are mm-hmm. our opposite terms to describe things. So something can be small relative to something else or something can be big relative to something else. Um, and because there's also like kind of just a size of things that are around usually, and some things are bigger than the average thing that might be around. And some things are smaller. That is true. Frame of reference. Yeah. (laughs) I like the idea that there's like a kind of normal size for a thing. Somebody's got to have done this research where like you sort of like bring by just gray orbs and you're like, is that orb big or small? Mm. And then people will be like, that one's kind of not either. And they're like, we found it. Yeah. It's like this size. So I was like trying mm. to figure out if someone's done your gray orb experiment. Uh-huh. And apparently there is, I, this is not the experiment, but apparently there's something called Alice in Wonderland syndrome. Um, that is a neurological disorder that distorts your perception mm. of things. This happened um, to me once. Oh? I was walking with my future wife down a road in Florida and I saw a squirrel and I said, holy shit, that squirrel is huge. It's like the size of a corgi. And Catherine was like, that's a normal squirrel. And I was like, no, it's huge. Like it's a world record winning squirrel. We need to chase it. And we got up to it and it was precisely squirrel sized. Was it next to like a miniature home? You know, those small homes? (laughs) It was was the tiny house. It was the dollhouse it was standing next to. It's Tyrannosaurus Rex squirrel. So yeah, yeah, big and small. I don't think we need to get any deeper into it. Big is like large, small is like little. And that's it. Today we're going to learn about about how we all perceive things, like whether or not we agree that something's big, whether we agree that something's small, yeah, whether that squirrel that in the distance have. is a normal sized squirrel or not. Do you have etymology of big and small, Sari? I do, and they are quite different, even though they kind of lump together in my brain. So big, mm-hmm. completely unknown origin, which is <laughs> happens pretty rarely, I feel like, yeah. in a word. Um, it appeared sometime in Middle English oh, wow. to mean so powerful or strong and maybe came from like North-ish Scandinavian areas. But before this, in Old English, the word for like powerful or bulky or large was mickle, uh, which is a very funny word. It's like, oh, that's mickle. We could have had mickle and small instead of big and small. little. And yeah. eventually, mickle, like that, that word became much in, in uh, linguistically. But uh, big came out of nowhere, squashed mickle right out of here. Yeah, I wonder if like people were just like, we like the sound of big. It's just like a fun word to say. There's a B and a G. Like those are not. Yeah, same as big. Commonly, to me. It's yeah. a small word, smaller than little, but it feels big. Feels big. Feels powerful. Feels right. They like the mouthfeel. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. They stuck yeah. with it. <laughs> And then small, we do know where it comes from. Uh, It's from like Germanic-ish flavored languages. Um, And it used to be used to describe animals or livestock um, in addition to like slender or thin or narrow things. But any sort of like like a a small thing or like small was used to describe like a small animal as a concept, which I think is very interesting, which also brings in this question of what's big, what's small. And a small was just like when you thought an animal was smaller than it, a normal one, that's a small. Yeah, I feel like an animal (laughs) is small if I can't be afraid of it. Once I can be afraid of an animal, like a goose is big. 
Because I can be afraid of a goose. I can definitely be afraid of a goose. Yeah, but like a small snake is to me just as scary as a big snake. Yeah, like what about a deadly jellyfish? In their own, that's all the, that was, venom is in its own category. Just (laughs) physical trauma. Oh, no, no, but I'm not just afraid of venomous snakes. I'm afraid of all of them. But only because your brain has been trained by the venomous Mm. ones. (laughs) What about like a really gentle elephant? It could Are hurt you. Are you still scared though. of it? It could That's definitely. True. It could hurt you yeah. if it wanted to. Yeah. All right. I, I'm changing my mind. A small animal is one that I can easily kill. <laughs> I'm, I'm switching it around. It's not about what they can what do to me. Like, it's about what I can do to them. One you could pick up. You could yeah, have like it was a like carry. Yeah. Violence. <laughs> <laughs> You're really ready for this death match. Yeah. Primed, yeah. ready. Yeah. So that means it's time that we're going to move on to the quiz portion of our show with our first game and our big versus small death rally presented <laughs> this game by Sari. What are we going to do? While declassified documents can be fodder for conspiracy theorists or in some cases, super valid disillusionment about the lack of consent in so many experiments, uh, U.S. government projects are full of big budgets, big <laughs> ideas, and big mistakes. Mm-hmm. So this is a truth or fail express, big weird government science, aka, while I could have talked about whales or trees or exoplanets, for some reason, my brain was like, wow, you know what would be great for a science comedy podcast? <laughs> Talking about the enormous hubris of powerful white Americans in the 20th century. Uh, and this is the game I have. So there's no the going one, back. It's the one we're going to do. <laughs> this is what I've chosen to encapsulate the idea of big. This okay. is our Barbenheimer. Yeah, this is, uh, maybe that's it. Barbenheimer yeah. has infiltrated my brain. And right. uh, I was like, <laughs> this is great. So there'll be four, four rounds of this okay. truth or fail express. The first story is natural gas is a hydrocarbon fuel source that's mostly methane. And generally, we mine it from reservoirs in sedimentary rock by drilling holes or making cracks somehow. But in 1967, Project Gas Buggy detonated a 26 kiloton nuclear device underground in New Mexico to extract a lot of natural gas all at once from a sandstone well. So the question is, is Project Gas Buggy real or not? It's got to be real. We were doing, well, it was definitely proposed because they proposed using nuclear bombs to do everything in the 60s. They were like, problem solved. (laughs) You want a new, like, Suez Canal bothering you? Let's do a new one with nuclear bombs. Do it through Israel. It'll be fine. What was the year again of Project Gas Buggy? 1967. Oh, okay. Interesting. What a funny name for a project. You know, hmm, I think they probably didn't end up doing it. I I also kind of think not. Mostly just because the name is so funny. It's the name. Uh, the name's getting me. I'm going to say false, <laughs> but this is totally something that would happen. But I. The name is is throwing me off. Did we all guess no? Yeah, we all guess no. Uh, you're all wrong. It is <gasps> real. It did they happen. The actual oh. ground. They moved oh. the actual. So the Atomic Energy Commission uh, was a program that was organized in June 1957 to develop peaceful uses for nuclear explosives, <laughs> which I think is the funniest tagline. <laughs> Oh, it's like an oxymoron, or but yeah. Um, and now, now with that context, the name 
makes sense. Like the name is the yeah. branding thing. <laughs> like oh, it's yeah. like we gotta make it sound cute and fun. A cute yeah. little yeah. gas buggy. Yeah. Um, it became the Division of Peaceful Nuclear Explosives uh, in 1961. And they, like Hank was saying, came up with ideas to use nuclear blasts to build harbors or dams or highways or canals and stimulate the economy. And in 1967, this uh, commission combined efforts with the El Paso Natural Gas Company, because, of course, it's a corporate thing also, Mm -hmm. to blow up a sealed well and try and (laughs) harvest natural gas from it. But they didn't really think the plan through because once you detonate a nuclear bomb beneath the surface of the earth, even if that radiation doesn't spread. If you then try to harvest the natural gas, uh, it is irradiated. <laughs> and that's a problem. You can't yeah, use that. and then that. when you burn it, it's still irradiated. Like, you don't yeah. burn away the atoms. <laughs> it doesn't go away. Um, and they did this multiple times, too. Like, there oh, is a, a oh, project, no. Rulison, uh, named after the the community in Colorado. I think that's how you say it. Rulison? Rulison? Where they did it again. They were like, let's harvest more natural gas by detonating a nuclear device. Very dumb. Yeah, and then we can transport the radiation out of the well to places near people and burn it. <laughs> yeah. Into Horrible. the air. Um, you all wow. got that one wrong. We're off to a strong... Yeah. I feel... And I, I didn't. We didn't even really have the right reason to get it wrong. Like, we should have said, no, that's stupid. Why would you take irradiated gas (laughs) out of the ground? Yeah. Story number two. We got got three more of these. We need Uh, to stop talking so much. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So story number two is the rat flea, Xenocyla chiopsis, is small in size, but it has a big impact on disease transmission. In 1954, to see whether fleas could be a possible biological warfare agent, Operation Big Itch dropped groups of 100 to 200,000 fleas from planes onto a bunch of literal guinea pigs in the Utah <gasps> desert. Is Operation Big Itch real or not? The guinea pigs is the part Big. this time that's getting me. And then I'm going to find out is like the reason I should believe this. <laughs> <laughs> I think Operation Big Itch is real. Because they definitely want to drop fleas on people. I just feel like they would have gone straight for humans. <laughs> it's just fleas. I'm going to say false. I feel like there are a lot of things that have a lot of attempts at dropping things on other countries that are like microbes or insects, mm-hmm. things like that. But I don't, I've never never come across fleas. And I feel like maybe I would have in my research for some of the episodes we've done. Yeah. I mean, one vote against this is that you don't like need to drop fleas on soldiers. Like they already got them in the trenches. I see what you're saying. (laughs) It's not a, it's not a good vibe already. Like the, the misery is close to peak, but I'm still saying it it was real. I'm going to say it's true just to spread out, just to do a strategy (laughs) because I don't know the answer. (laughs) Thanks to Voki. Yeah. For the gameplay. Um, yeah. Well, this is real. It is true. Oh, my gosh. Wow. Uh, the naming of these is just mind-blowing to me. Yeah. yeah. I found some fun. This is like what spurred the game in my late night delusions. <laughs> like, these are so funny and weird. It's comedy, guys. <laughs> uh, all this warfare. So these tests uh, in Operation Big Itch showed that fleas could survive the drop and would soon attach themselves to these animal hosts on the ground. They were literal guinea pigs in a 600-meter-ish uh, in diameter circular grid. Um, and But a uh, part of the problem of these tests 
they were trying to figure out the best like encapsulation of these fleas were that uh, they didn't create good enclosures. And in the 200,000 flea cases, the pilot, the bombardier, and observers on the planes were also bitten many times. Oh, like, this no. the fleas escaped. Yeah. <laughs> Which, like, they probably deserved it. But that made me, like, <laughs> like 100,000 fleas, manageable. 200,000 fleas, unconscionable. <laughs> like, we can't do it. it Too breaks. many. Physics yeah. breaks. They, yeah. Yeah. They, and the guinea pigs get their revenge. All right, all right. Okay, so we're doing all right here. Uh, here on team whatever I am. Big. We're big. <laughs> big. Yes, please. <laughs> There's only two options. <laughs> um, okay, so story number three is that there have been many efforts to try and control weather, such as by scattering a dusty substance in a cloud to act as nucleation sites for rain. But in 1946... Project North Pole had a more specific goal. Using 20 tons or around 40,000 pounds of granular dry ice, which is frozen carbon dioxide, they brought snow to the Florida panhandle to try and break a deadly heat wave. Well, this is the least stupid name, so I don't think it's real. I know. <laughs> <laughs> How are you going to break a heat wave with just dry, just, just like spread it around? Did, did they put it in the sky? Did I miss They this? put it in the sky. Yes, okay, yeah, so it was it like a cloud seeding. So they wanted to seed the clouds so that there was snow falling. I have no idea how well dry ice does at certain elevations. Like, I don't know mm-hmm. how much, like, how much would that... The problem, again, is, like, that just because it doesn't make sense doesn't mean that it's not <laughs> I know, like, the, true, the, true. the nuclear, yeah, the nuclear yeah. bomb thing. Like, So, yeah, I shouldn't use uh, logic with this. I should yeah. use feelings. My feeling is that it's false. <laughs> My feeling is also that it is false. Me too. But Deboki, should I just say true? Can we can we sidebar for a sec? <laughs> yeah. All right, I'm Do true. we play with strategy? Go to the confessional. I think you should go with your feelings. Yes, mm. I agree. I feel like it's false. You're all correct. It is false. Yes. Oof. This okay. is a brain, a brain invention of my own. <laughs> um, I like it was that, based though. in in a little bit of truth. So in the 1940s or so, there was research done at General Electric uh, on cloud particles and cloud modifications. And the reason I found this fact was because Kurt Vonnegut, like the author, he had a physicist brother named Bernard. And Bernard Vonnegut was a physicist at GE working on weather seeding and like cloud oh. particles and whatnot. Very weird. Um, yeah. And so he like collaborated with an atmospheric scientist and a Nobel laureate or Nobel laureate um, to like try to figure out ways to control weather. And as one of these experiments, very small and in St- Schenectady, New York, like upstate New York, they made a little bit of snow at one point using dry ice in a cloud, but there was no like grander purpose to it. It was just like, can we, can we make weather in some yeah. way? Yeah. Right. That's, that's, <laughs> that's going to be like, Oh, the, the few, whole future. It's going to be real messy. You guys. Okay. This is the last one. So story number four is before the United States space force even existed as a branch of the military. There was obviously tons of experimentation with space technology for exploration, defense, and the like. In 1987, 
a project called Brilliant Pebbles began the research and development of small, lightweight spacecraft that were meant to orbit the Earth in fleets of up to 100,000, detect any missiles launched outside the atmosphere with infrared sensors, and destroy them by colliding with them at high speeds. Is the project Brilliant Pebbles real or not? How do the pebbles move around? They're spacecraft. Oh. They're small, lightweight yeah. spacecraft. I got confused by the name. Pebbles. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a tongue-in-cheek name, you know? Because you're just, like, picturing fruity pebbles, yeah. like, aiming yeah. at an asteroid or something. Yeah. Or a missile. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They're going fast enough. I'm going with my name thing, which is, like, if this feels like a government name, like, it's yeah. got to be a government project, and this feels like yeah. a government name. I yeah, they this, wanted to make, the make it sound like a breakfast cereal, but actually yeah. be a military project. I'm going to go true on this. Both going true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I could, t- I could take the risk. You sure nah, could. But I think it's real, though. So I should go with my gut. Well, yeah. Yeah, it's real. We're idiots. <laughs> <laughs> and you are all right. It is real. Yes. Uh, Brilliant Pebbles did exist. <laughs> Sometimes uh, I'm like hoping we're wrong because that just yeah. seems so unreasonable, yeah. but that's fine. This one I was hoping was right. I liked this one. I, I like this idea. It just, again, the name. I, I like the idea that there's a file somewhere that says Brilliant Pebbles. Mm. So this was part of the Strategic Defense Initiative in like mm. the Reagan era of presidency. Uh, Cold War was, tensions were going on and they were like, how can we defend ourselves and of course, the scientists came up with a solution of like, let's launch a hundred thousand little spacecraft. Yeah. Uh, because why not? Because then we yeah. can constantly monitor whether a missile is going to come and and deter it. Um, mm-hmm. They developed these like little light spacecraft, or like looked into what uh, what it would take to build one, but they never actually. Obviously, <laughs> I think we would know if if there were this many like small things orbiting the Earth mm-hmm. all of a sudden. But the technology was actually used in another way, which was a little bit surprising. In 1994, a U.S. spacecraft called Clementine was launched to the moon. It was the first mm-hmm. since Explorer 49 in 1973. Um, and it was designed and built to image the moon. And so... <laughs> Um, it transmitted about 1.6 million digital images of the lunar surface. Yeah, we got the most brilliant pebble of all. Yeah. Oh. A little guy. Good little yeah. rock. Yeah. Doing his best. Well, we've come out with Team Little with five points and Team Big with just three. But we didn't have a lot of opportunities to get points in that game. Next time, Team Big has its chance for a comeback. <laughs> well, first, we're going to take a short break and we'll be back for Team Small's game. SciShow Tangents is brought to you by Rocket Money. If I asked you how many subscription services you had, you think you could name them all? And before you just start naming streaming apps, remember that basically everything has a subscription these days. Video games, dating apps, food delivery apps. It's a subscription service world. We're just living in it. And with all of these subscriptions, it can feel like money is just flying out of your account. And that, frankly, sucks. But Rocket Money can help. 
Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money can help you negotiate to lower some bills for you by up to 20%. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in total canceled subscriptions. Escape from the planet of the subscription services and stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash tangents. That's rocketmoney.com slash tangents. Rocketmoney.com slash T-A-N-G-E-N-T-S. SciShow Tangents is brought to you by Factor, whose ready-to-eat meal delivery takes the stress out of meal planning. Stress is stressful. (laughs) I don't like it. (laughs) Life just goes and goes, and it doesn't ever stop going. There's always something else to do. And one of those things is a very important thing called eating dinner. To eat dinner, one must pick out what they want to eat and then go to the grocery store and then buy the stuff and then chop the stuff and do other things to the stuff. You have to heat the stuff and put it in water. And then afterwards, you have to take the things that you heated it in and they're gross and you have to make them clean again. Meanwhile, life is still happening that all oh, all oh, that's building up around you. Oh, this is like, terrifying. I'm so, <laughs> I never want to cook again. <laughs> You're right, Factor Ad. I don't. I don't want to have this happen. This is unacceptable. Sometimes, uh, parentheses, all the time, uh, you just don't have the time or the energy for meal planning on top of everything else going on in your life. So thankfully, Factor is here to help. Factor's two-minute meals are your secret weapon come mealtime. You can get chef-crafted meals that are better for you and better tasting than takeout delivered right to your door. Ready to heat and ready to eat. No prep, no mess, no sink full of dishes, no stress. We're kicking stress out the door in 2024, and I certainly hope that's true for me. <laughs> Heck yeah, Factor. Kick my stress. Right out the door. <laughs> I'm going to get a chest freezer just for these meals. <laughs> oh, you're going to need one because they have over 35 meals to choose from. Flexible ordering options, add-ons, smoothies. Factor offers all sorts of fast, simple solutions when you're too busy to cook. Banish your stress, even if it's just for like one hour while you're eating dinner. Head to factormeals.com slash tangents50 and use code tangents50 to get 50% off. That's code tangents50 at factormeals.com slash tangents50 to get 50% off. And now, Deboki, please tell me, what do you have for us? Okay, well, sometimes the goal of science is to make things big, like some of what Sari was talking about. But also, sometimes science wants to do the complete opposite and take things that like maybe exist at a certain size and make them even smaller. So today, we're playing this or that small things edition. I'm going to tell you about some kind of wild scientific feat of miniaturization. And then I'm going to describe that object. And then I'm going to describe some other object. And it's going to be up to you to figure out which one is smaller. So in 2021, researchers found a way to make tiny human hearts using stem cells that had been exposed to proteins and other molecules that are known to shape heart development in the womb. Within a week, the cells created a chamber-like structure similar to the left ventricle, and the walls began to contract, sort of like a heartbeat. The scientists named their tiny hearts cardioids. So 
which is smaller, the diameter of one of these cardioids, or the diameter of a typical mouse heart? I mean, I assumed cardi- my, in my head, cardioids were way smaller than a mouse heart. Yeah, I'm going to say the cardioids. That is my instinct, too. Like, I'm thinking like, like not like an M&M, but like a runt. That's how I'm mm. feeling about cardi- yeah. cardioids. <laughs> not to th- yeah. imagine eating them. <laughs> I wasn't, but now <laughs> I I'm gonna go with my heart, and I'm gonna say the cardioid is smaller because you can make it whatever size you want. Well, you're all correct. So a mouse heart typically has a diameter of around six millimeters. The diameters of these cardioids were around one millimeter. So like still kind of tough to eat, but like super small and cool. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) So the scientists made these cardioids so that they can actually study how congenital heart defects develop in human embryos, which I thought was really neat. Like, obviously, it's kind of hard to like peer into a human embryo to see what's going on. Um, But like being able to kind of build these little cardioids and see them develop. Lexus lets us like know more about how the heart develops and hopefully will help us understand more about how uh, uh, heart defects develop in the womb. Um, they actually also tested it further by using a steel rod, a cold one, to freeze parts of the cardioid so like that some of the cells would get damaged. And they actually could see cells coming in to repair those bits. So super cool. Like oh, just cool. really interesting. That's awesome. I mean, it turns out that mouse hearts are super, are like runt sized. You could eat a whole handful of them, Hank, if you wanted, like a like a box of runts. Like box you of tip runs. it back and you go. That's a, yeah, especially what runts are—they're candy coated mouse hearts. <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> Little did you know. Okay. So hearts are not the only organs that scientists have tried to shrink. Scientists have also designed miniature brains for various purposes, including my favorite one, which is to play a game. In 2022, scientists reported that they were able to make a miniature brain that they called dish brain, which used a mixture of human and mouse neurons grown on an electrode array. And with their design, they were actually able to teach dish brain how to play Pong. No. So what was smaller, dish brain or a CD-ROM? Ooh, I feel like dish brain and a CD-ROM are very similar sizes. Oh. I was definitely picturing just a Petri dish, which is smaller than a CD-ROM, but not substantially. Do you mean diameter? Yeah, sorry, diameter. Yeah. Okay. Dish brain. I, I know that it's interesting and we got to keep learning things about the world. <laughs> But sometimes I feel like we shouldn't make a mouse-human hybrid play Pong. <laughs> what do you think we should make it play, if not Pong? Yeah, Mortal Kombat, probably. Something really violent. <laughs> yeah, as long as it's still small, uh, which means That's Hank can kill it, then we're safe. <laughs> um, I also think, I'm picturing, I'm going to go with my gut instinct. I'm also picturing a Petri dish, so I'm also going to say it's smaller than a CD-ROM. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Well, you're all correct again. A standard CD has a diameter of around 4.75 inches, and the dish brain had a diameter of two inches. Oh. Um, at least based on what I could find. So, like, they they weren't using a Petri dish. From what I understood, they were, like, using, like, a specific array that's basically kind of designed to hold these Mm -hmm. electrodes. Um, So there were 1,024 active electrodes surrounded by around 800,000 neurons, which is apparently roughly the same number of neurons in a bee's brain. And so they basically created the system where the electrodes were creating signals that are sort of like pixels, like in terms of like if you imagined like the ball, except instead of it being like light, it's just electrical signals. And so you can move that around to create this sense of a ball moving through the dish that the neurons are interacting with. Um, 
And then the system in turn had like a, what they call kind of like a game controller system where the neurons are responding with their own signals that are then get interpreted as a sort of paddle movement. And so that the program would process what the neurons responded with and then send a second signal back to basically be a feedback that would let the neurons know, like, were they successful with the ball? The neurons were able to get better at Pong within five minutes. And after 20 minutes, they were up to doing short rallies. I do like that the they, they saw this like two inch thing and they were like, that's a dish. We're using the <laughs> yeah. um, like the ultimate human method of bullying to uh, put down yeah. the thing that we're scared yeah. of. And right. say, Oh, you're dish brain. Uh, as opposed to like this incredible, terrifying mutant mm-hmm. human mouse neuron thing. Yeah. 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 All right. Well, geez, we, some people, we got to start getting some of these wrong, you guys. Somebody yeah. Somebody does, particularly yeah. Sam. <laughs> Okay, so to study 3D vision, like if we want to study it in humans, we have to be able to show independent images to our left and our right eyes so we can understand how the differences in those images they're receiving helps our brain construct the three-dimensional image that we then like see. And one way to do that is with your standard old-school 3D glasses that have those red-blue lenses, but that's Kind of hard to do if you're a scientist who wants to understand 3D vision and praying mantises. They need something a little bit smaller. And so some scientists were like, hey, we know how to do this. We're going to make miniature 3D glasses for praying mantises. So what is smaller, the diameter of the lens on a praying mantis 3D glass or the diameter of a new pencil eraser? I'm going to say the mantis glass or s- yeah, glasses that's that smaller. Too. I'm going to say... The pencil eraser. I feel like, yeah. I feel like they got big old eyes, and I don't know. <laughs> have you ever met a praying mantis? No, I have not. Okay. Well, it seems like she still has knowledge of their eyes because yeah, the pencil yeah. eraser oh is the gosh. smaller one. Whoa. Yeah, so pencil Gee, erasers big. have a diameter of like around five millimeters. Um, the the lenses for these mantises they're shaped like a teardrop but I decided to pretend that they were a circle and their widest diameter was around seven millimeters. Uh, To actually put these glasses on the mantis, the the scientists would put the mantis in a freezer for five to seven minutes and then put them under the microscope lens with, and like put the mantis in like modeling clay. So like they're kind of frozen. Now they're stuck in clay. (laughs) And then they, they put the glasses onto the mantis using beeswax and rosin to like hold them in place. I was like, I don't think a mantis has a very good nose bridge. So I was just kind of curious. How they? <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's glue. <laughs> you just glue it basically oh onto God. them. I'm yeah, looking okay. the, and you can see them. They took pictures. He wow. looks what like basically he's saying, "Why is this happening to me?" Yep. <laughs> yeah, I don't like. I never thought I could see despair on a praying mantis's face, oh. but you can see it. Okay, like, so why? our last one in 2022, NASA launched nachos into space. <laughs> NACHO stands for Nanosat Atmospheric Chemistry Hyperspectral Observation System, and it's an imager designed to help us find trace gases in small areas on Earth with the hope that it will help us study pollution and volcanoes and other gas-emitting things. So what is smaller, the volume of nachos or a jar of queso blanco from Target? (laughs) (laughs) Do I get a free pass because I'm lactose intolerant or like, is that not? <laughs> yes. Queso Blanco is very, I know exactly the size of that. <laughs> I'm very familiar with the size of that. 
Uh, and it's not very big. I, I have to say the case of Wonka is smaller. If I were a scientist coming up with a nacho satellite, <laughs> how small would I make it? I'm going to say the satellite. I'm there. I feel like they're really trying to make things small these days. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go satellite as well. Cool. So we have satellites. Hank, what was your answer? Queso Blanco. Okay. You're doing Queso Blanco. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the satellite is smaller. Ugh. So at least the jar of queso blanco that I found on Target's website is 15 fluid ounces or <laughs> 27 cubic inches in volume. <laughs> Nachos, the Nanoset Atmospheric Chemistry Hyperspectral Observation System, is 18 cubic inches. Mm. Wow. And this is pretty exciting, like in general. Like there are satellites that people use to monitor trace gas- gases, but the the instruments on them are really big. They need a lot of power, and they're not usually able to gather a lot of super fine detail about where the gases actually are that they find. Um, they're you know usually finding them more in kind of like a coarse regional basis. But the the technol the technology underlying Nachos comes from the Los Alamos National Laboratory, and it uses this thing called hyperspectral imaging where you're getting kind of like all of these pixels of information, but instead of having colors in those pixels, you have like hundreds of wavelength bands that are the spectral markers of different gases. And so then you can sift through them to find the the gas that you're particularly interested in. And so they launched it in 2022. And at the time, they said it would probably run for about a year so that scientists could see whether or not it works well. So hopefully, hopefully it did. Awesome. Yeah. Now, how big was the queso blanco jar that you saw on Target.com? <laughs> it was 15 <laughs> fluid ounces. Okay. That's a, I think that's the average size. Yeah. All right. Well, Tuna, while we've been chatting, has done the math. Team Big comes out on top with nine <laughs> points, just above your eight points. There's only <laughs> wow, one science close. podcast that reigns supreme. And <laughs> yeah. just like just like uh, the emperor of the... Uh, the the Ottoman Empire, upon seeing people drinking illegal coffee in the streets, I must now behead you uh, by surprise <laughs> with a broadsword. Man, games are really going to be different on tangents going forward. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the vibe's going to change a lot. Also, <laughs> yeah. we won't have you to like help out with the show, which is going to make <laughs> <Yeah>. it harder. <laughs> yeah. Um, but what has to be done has to be done. <laughs> it's true. And now it is time to very quickly ask our newly enlarged science couch. Because we've been going for a long time. Uh, we've, got a, we've got a question for this illustrious group of finely honed scientific minds. It's from Chris on Discord and from at Maya, B, Maya Biard. <laughs> yeah, that's as good as I'm going to do. They both ask, what is the smallest single-celled organism? And how does it exist at such a small size? Now, Deboki and Sam, you got to know that uh, always we begin with me trying to pull the answer out of my butt. But like this one, <laughs> I don't. I it's a it's got to be a bacteria or archaea. Yeah, one of you yeah. guys. I know. I'm like, what is the smallest though of the yeah, of bacteria? The, yeah. I I don't. Like what know. what like what situations like... would it be good to be small in? I think it's more what is the naming that they would use that we can guess. And then mm. we can sound like really smart when we guess yeah. the right name. Sarah Small is, in is, Latin. <laughs> Harvest bacteria. Yeah. Okay. Is it a, is it a bacteria or archaea? Which it is, is it? both of those. A bacteria oh. is what I found okay. uh, mm-hmm. most of, but we have very small archaea too. And Deboki, you were right with the the nomenclature that you were headed down. Uh, not 100%, but bacteria 
are super messy genetically, taxonomically, et cetera, um, how they're related to each other. It's hard for us to tell. So there's a pretty big group of related bacteria phyla called the candidate phyla radiation or CPR for short. Um, And basically that means they haven't, these candidate bacteria are well characterized genetically, but haven't been cultured. We haven't grown them Mm -hmm. in labs and just know that they exist because we found their DNA. Mm. Um, And the CPR group contains some of the smallest living organisms we know of called ultra microbacteria. So they just took two words for small. Wow. Or super small. And then yeah. we're like, that's the name we're going to call Man, but them. Parvis would have been so good. And it's possible that there is a, a specific bacterial phyla or phylum that has that name. So mm-hmm. from what I can tell, uh, ultra micro bacteria in general, the first time they were described was in a 1981 paper studying tiny colonies of bacteria in seawater. They were defined as proliferating cells, so like healthy growing bacterial cells that were less than um, 0.1 micrometers cubed in volume. And they have really small genomes, like 3.2 to 0.5-ish megabases of, of a genome. And they're missing a lot of proteins, particularly ribosome proteins, which are helping with protein synthesis. So mm-hmm. uh, they our, our guess is that these ultramicrobacteria rely on other bacteria to help them survive. So some sort of parasitic relationship, they might have some like external structures to help them take nutrients or, I don't know, fill in the capabilities that these minimized genomes don't let them. And they have weird names. So all of these CPR group bacteria, from what I can tell, they have like an acronym name based on where they were found. And then if we like them enough, we give them a fancy name. So Mm, in a 2015 study um, from UC Berkeley, they actually imaged three ultra microbacteria phyla from groundwater samples. Um, And the three that they imaged were WWE3, which was named from wastewater of every three because (laughs) it was from every France uh, and Uh. collected from municipal anaerobic sludge uh, there. And they were like, oh, WWE3. But then it was later named Catanobacteria from the Hebrew word Catan, which translates to small and so that's why I think, like, with your Latin, there must be one. I don't, I don't know why we always have to, like, go to other languages. I think that we could just call it, like, Actinobacter baby. <laughs> small bacter. <laughs> A smallobacter. <laughs> so if you want to ask the science couch your question, you can follow us on Twitter at SciShowTangents, where we'll tweet out topics for upcoming episodes every week. Or you could join the SciShow Tangents Patreon and ask us on our Discord. Thank you to at TriscuitBells, Mike2369, and everybody else who asked us your questions for this episode. Deboki and Sam, how can we find Tiny Matters? Tiny Matters, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, wherever All else you listen. All the podcast places. Yes. All the podcast places. Um, and we also have transcripts available for all of our episodes at acs.org slash tinymatters. Where would I start if I was going to watch some Tiny Matters? So we did do an episode on the huge potential of psychedelic-assisted therapy for mental health. Yeah. So, you know, drugs like psilocybin, LSD, ketamine, how they're already being used to treat conditions like anxiety and depression. And then also 
why psychedelic research was on the rise in the 60s, but then all but vanished in the 70s. So that was a pretty fun one. We had Hank on the show back in February. We talked about communicating science and the millions of things that he does, including SciShow Tangents. So definitely check that one out. The main thing that I do is work as exec producer of Tiny Matters and co-host it with Deboki, but I do a bunch of other writing and things. So you can find me on social everywhere at Sam J Science. There's a lot of Sam Joneses out there. So yeah. I feel like I have to just... <laughs> a lot of Sam's. The science one. Yeah. yeah, the science one. There's only a few Deboki Chakravartis, but <laughs> I go by Okie Dokie Bokie on the internet just to make it harder. <laughs> but you're the best. You're the best of them. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> if you like this show and you want to help us out, uh, it's super easy to do that. You can go to patreon.com slash scishowtangents to become a patron and get access to our bonus episodes and our newsletter. And don't forget, when we hit 700 patrons, I swear it will happen. We will do a <laughs> Minions movie commentary. Or maybe we've already hit 700. We're very close. And Sam's not here to tell me. Uh, either way, go subscribe, because the only way you can hear that is if you're a Patreon patron. And I know that it's the, the only thing that's missing from your very rich life. Second, you can leave us a review wherever you listen. That helps us know what you like about the show and helps other people find us. And finally, if you want to show your love for SciShow Tangents, just tell people, tell about, people us. about us. Thank you for joining us. I've been Hank Green. I've been Sari Riley. I've been Deboki Chakravarti. I've been Sam Jones. And I've been Hank Green. SciShow Tangents <laughs> by all of us. And for Produced usually by Sam Schultz. I guess he still produced this episode. It certainly was in charge of it. Our associate producer is Eve Schmidt. Our editor is Seth Glicksman. Our story editor is Alex Billow. Our social media organizer is Julia Buzz Bazayo. Our editorial assistant is Deboki Chakraverty. Our sound design is by Joseph Tunamedish. Our executive producers are Nicole Sweeney and me, Hank Green. And of course, we couldn't make any of this without our patrons on Patreon. Thank you. And remember, the mind is not a vessel to be filled, but a fire. But one more thing. Leafcutter Ant, Ada Levy Gaeta, has lots of names in various South American Spanish dialects, which in English roughly translate to big-bottomed ant or the slightly raunchy fat-ass ant. <laughs> and they have so many names because they're a seasonal delicacy in many cultures. Their massive nests are 10 to 20 feet underground and contain millions of ants. And during late spring, when there's heavy rain, a bunch of queens emerge from their colonies with huge butts full of unfertilized eggs. <laughs> they're ready to seek out mates, but many of them get snatched up by predators, including hungry humans. Then these small ants with big butts get soaked in salt water, okay. roasted or fried, and eaten wow. as a crunchy, protein-rich snack. You know, I thought it would just be raw, uh, <laughs> was my thought. But now that, they're, now that they're cooked, I'm kind of interested. Now, my question is, is a big butt ant's butt smaller or bigger than a cardioid? What is it? <laughs> what is it? Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs>